Thank you, Laura. Wow, what a wonderful song and a great truth. Well done. Thank you so much. Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you've had a good week. Where were you last week? Oh, that's right. We weren't here. Yeah, that's right. Well, I was here, but uh, glad to see you back and hope you've had a good week indeed. These are interesting times, and so we're, uh, we're learning all over again how important it is to be flexible. And uh, those are good things ahead for us, for sure. Well, uh, glad you're here today. We're moving and working our way, of course, through September, and so... Uh, Lots of things ahead for us on our calendar and keep up with all those things. Pastor Jason will be mentioning some of those as we finish. And uh, keep in mind, too, this is Pastor Jason's last week with us. Next uh, Sunday will be his last Sunday. And as he's taken uh, a ministry position with the church in Charlotte. And uh, so Wednesday night he'll be speaking here. And I hope you'll either be here or be looking in for that. And then a reminder, next Sunday evening... We have a uh, fellowship planned to uh, wish he and his family well and send them off with our best wishes and prayers for the Lord's leading. And It's a busy time uh, for sure for him, so uh, keep some of those things in mind. But keep up with all the announcements of things uh, coming around in our church calendar, fall and soon holidays. I think uh, today the weekly announcements actually have some stuff in there about Thanksgiving and Christmas, so, uh, uh, so it's right upon us for sure. Today we'll look at Psalms 46. Not so much to go through it verse by verse. We'll read every verse in it. There's 70-some verses. No, just, just 11. Uh, we'll read all the verses as we start. And certainly it's worthy of some comments as we um, finish with uh, this passage. But I want to use it as a starting point today for a sermon. We'll talk about more in just a moment. Uh, you've got the, the big screen lettering up there, right? So no problem reading that, hopefully. Let's see here what this... These 11 verses of Psalms 46 had to say to us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, see, once you get verse 1 in your thinking, you have to come to the therefore. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, what's that about? Unusual circumstances. Something extremely out of the ordinary. Though the waters thereof, in verse 3, roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. As you read the Psalms or study the Psalms, you'll come across that word selah occasionally. We're going to say it twice more before we finish. It's a musical notation. Remember the Psalms are songs. It's a musical notation to say, take a, take a musical break here or take a stop for a moment. As you're reading, it's a good place to say the psalmist intends for me to stop and think about what I've just read, to let it sink into our thinking a little bit. Musicians might call it a break. Uh, the real fancy musicians will call it a musical interlude. Uh, but it's just the idea of stop for a moment. Then we move on to verse 2. starts in the next verse, next verse of the song. There is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, that city. It's a great picture. She shall not be moved. That city will not be moved. It's firm. Its foundation is secure and stable in God's hands. God shall help her and that right early. That's a King James way of saying, on a moment's notice. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And there again, Selah. Take a moment to think on that. Meditate on it. Let it sink into our consciousness. Then the last part of Psalm 46, come behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he has made in the earth. He makes wars to cease until the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear and sunder. The imagery there of him taking and breaking it, someone breaking something over their knee. He burns the chariot in the fire. God puts an end to the battle. Puts an end to the war. Puts an end to the conflict with these verses. And then God interjects his own statement, as it were, right into the very last part of this. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. Even among the heathen, I will be exalted in the earth. Of course, exalted is lifted up, recognized for who he is. And then the entire psalm ends again with that echo. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. What a great psalm. There's so much encouragement to be found all through the book of Psalms. And I think this one today will remind us, I trust, of some important things. This psalm was recited or sung by the Israelites as a reminder of God's sovereign power over a foreign invader. It acknowledges success is from the Lord while it recognizes the reality of God's very evident presence and his involvement in the outcome of the battle. We find in this ancient psalm eternal truths. God is our refuge, our safety and security, it tells us. He is a very present, at our side, help, available, involved. Therefore, we will not fear. We have no reason to fear when God is by our side, the psalmist is telling us. Even if the earth quakes and the mountain is carried into the sea, those unusual circumstances do not shake our faith in the living God. A river that makes glad the city of God provides a flowing abundance of life-giving supply. God is in the midst to protect on a moment's notice. The city is safe. The inhabitants are secure. Even though the heathen rage, their blasphemous and vile hatred for God and his people, their voices are but mere shadows. Theirs are the shouts of profane outrage. But they have no effect upon those whose faith and trust is in God. And as you read through this psalm, you have to note the plural pronouns. They say the Lord of hosts is with us. He is with our need. He is our sanctuary. We are the inhabitants of his city. It is the sound of his voice that overwhelms the enemies of righteousness and dissolves even the ground under them. Do we even get a glimpse of the power of God? 
the capacity he has to protect us in every situation, in every moment of life, in the difficulties that life invariably brings to us, God is always there. His presence is sometimes shrouded by our own lack of ability to see him. But nonetheless, he is always there. Such has been the case of recent in our country. You know, the last 75 years or so, America has enjoyed a time of great and incredible discovery and unprecedented innovation. And as is our nature, because we tend to do this, we made life comfortable for ourselves, enjoyable in all the best ways. Life to us became predictable. We set our calendars, made our anticipation of things to come, planned our lives with a certain degree of expected predictability. But then, and unexpectedly, humanity became reacquainted with one of its most ancient adversaries. Even during a time of remarkable technology and great leaps in human achievement, Wow, we can hardly even remember a time before cell phones. We are so accustomed to those things around us. Even in the midst of all of that, we watch this adversary seemingly bring the world around us to a standstill. It seemed that suddenly abundance became scarcity. What could I have bid a year ago for this roll of toilet paper? <laughs> Abundance became scarcity. I gotta take care of that, wait a minute. And it seemed that predictability was banished from our thinking. For many, working did not mean going to work. And education did not mean going to school. We found ourselves face to face with questions that had no simple answers. And it seemed the main thing we learned from listening to the experts was not to listen to the experts. This ancient adversary was, of course, an infectious disease. More specifically, a virus. There it is. The Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, if you want to be technical. We began to watch daily as case numbers, infection rates, and casualty numbers increased, all because of the resulting disease known as COVID-19. It was an experience for sure new to all of us. Our generation had not seen such, a, such an enemy as this. So over the last year and a half, we have found ourselves again battling this enemy of humanity, and the battlefield was our bodies. Some of you can tell that story firsthand. And as in any war, there have been casualties, and all of the casualties were innocent. Very soon it seemed the shadows of fear, confusion, doubt, and anger surrounded us. And it began to dictate our thinking 
and our actions. Today, with our experiences of the last year and a half behind us, with God's word in our hand, I want us to try to see God in the current situation. To hear his voice as expressed from his word. It is his voice, the psalmist told us, that banishes the darkness of fear and confusion and doubt and anger. His voice. And he replaces them with faith, certainty, confidence, and peace. So for this moment, let's look beyond the debates. The debates about taking a shot or wearing a mask. Debates about social distancing. Let's look beyond that and use our spiritual senses. Our spiritual senses to see what is unseen to our natural eye and to hear what is unheard by our natural ear. That's why I've entitled today's sermon. Well, let me get to that in just a second. Uh, entitled today's sermon, Lessons from a Pandemic. These have indeed been unprecedented times. But in the grand scheme of all of history, we are not the first to face an epidemic or a pandemic. History has a long parade of infectious diseases. There they are. And I want us to think about what the virus teaches us about history. Four things I believe the virus can teach us today that we need to have some perspective to. The first is what the virus teaches us about history. That list is supplemented by some of the historical accounts of plagues and epidemics that wiped out mass numbers of people. I mentioned but a few. The plague of Justinian happened in the 6th century throughout the Roman Empire. It's estimated some 30 to 50 million people died from that plague. The Black Death, a bacterial infection that swept through the Roman Empire, through most of Europe, especially in the 1600s, including the Great Plague of London, it's known as, when it wiped out huge numbers of populations, even found as late as 1925 in some places. An estimated 200 million people died from the Black Death. Smallpox, a worldwide disease that emerged around the year 1600. It has left an estimated 56 million people dead. A little over a century ago, the Spanish flu virus, beginning in Europe, and of course, it was during that time when all the world, it seemed, came to Europe to fight a war. And when the war was over, everyone took the virus back home with them. And so it spread at magnificent rates, killing an estimated 40 to 50 million people. More people died from the flu, the Spanish flu, than they did from World War I. That's just how deadly it was. In our generation, we have seen the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. Still present today, 
no cure in sight. An estimated 30 plus million people have died from HIV. And that doesn't include the numbers that could be talked about from just this list of diseases that still impact populations today around the world. It wasn't too long ago we were talking about H1N1. Before that, the swine flu. If you're old enough to remember, in the late 60s, the Hong Kong flu. Ebola, bubonic plague, we mentioned earlier, typhus, hepatitis, tuberculosis is still a problem in many parts of the world. Malaria. The number one animal that threatens human life is a mosquito because it bears those types of diseases and encephalitis and other things too. When we think about it from a historical perspective, disease has been a part of man's existence. I found some interesting publications related to diseases of some we've mentioned, some previous generations. Lessons from a pandemic, where do we start? Well, about what it teaches us from history. Look at some of these pamphlets. This one printed as part of that bubonic plague in the mid-1600s. It's titled, Directions for the Cure of the Plague as for Preventing the Infections. Well, you have to give them a recognition for attempting and trying. Little did they know of enough medicine to really make a difference. What's interesting about some of those stories was in some cities, they put out a, a bounty on cats and dogs. They thought the cats and dogs were bringing it into the human population. So they put out a buyback program. Bring us your dead dog or cat and we'll pay you for it. That might be a buyback program we'd, be, we'd look to be involved in. But little did they know it was the cats and the dogs that were killing the rats that were carrying the fleas that caused the bubonic plague. So their best efforts fell short too. In 1603, Queen Elizabeth in England died, March of 1603. Before the month was out, King James VI of Scotland, her cousin, because she had no children, would be uh, appointed as the new king of England. So he moved his residence from Scotland to England to come to London. He arrived there a little later in the year, but upon doing so, the plague was again infesting London was not a safe place to be. He even put off some of his most important meetings as the new king until 1604. But in the meantime, once assuming the office and once realizing the, the problem of the plague, he published, or it was published under his name, this pamphlet entitled, Orders Thought Meet or Necessary by His Majesty and His Privy Council his privy council would be like our cabinet for our president, to be executed throughout the uh, counties of this realm in such towns, villages, and other places. So the government was getting involved even in 1603 in how to best attack the issue of the plague. Some of you may like this pamphlet. Here's the title of it. The Virtue and Use of Coffee with Regard to the Plague and Other Infectious Distempers in the early 1700s. History teaches us that humanity has battled this issue of disease through its existence. 
But you know the main history lesson the virus teaches us? Is that we live in a corrupted and distorted world. God's creation, called very good there in Genesis 1, became cursed at Adam's rebellion. And the righteous judgment it brought was not just upon Adam and Eve. The scripture records for us the words of God himself in Genesis 3, verse 17 and 18, tell us that God decreed to Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thus we realize a lesson the virus teaches us. That the harmful elements of this world, including the viruses and the bacteria and the fungus, the parasites, the disease, all remind us of this world's thorny corruptions. And that they are not merely inconveniences, but indeed they can both diminish and even destroy our physical lives. It's important, I think, we have a little bit of historical perspective. It's new to us, but it's not new to the history of mankind. And it's a reality that God's judgment upon this earth included those thorny complications of disease. And humanity has wrestled with it, will continue to wrestle with it. And our purpose today is not go down this path at all, but even if you go to the prophecies of the New Testament, it talks about the pestilences and the diseases that will come in the end times. So it is indeed a part of this world's existence to realize these things are here. And they have a reason. Not only does the Bible teach us a lesson about history. Oh, you'll like this one. I forgot this one. About 100 years ago, Birmingham, Alabama, this was the headline of the newspaper there. Churchless Day is planned here. The subtitle, Epidemic of Influenza, causes ban on all houses of worship. So what we're seeing now, what we've even experienced ourselves, it's not new to the attempt to try and deal with a, um, uh, with a plague. Lessons from a pandemic. It teaches us something about history, for sure. Biblical history, most important. But I think a plague also teaches us, a pandemic also teaches us about something about ourselves. It teaches us we are fragile creatures. We are always subject to the world's thorny corruptions. Our mortal existence has only a guarantee that we will not live this life forever. Physical death is always as close as our next breath. Indeed, things like infections, cancers, diseases, tumors, heart attacks, symbolisms, organ failure, stroke, and accidents, not to mention natural and man-made disasters, are all reminders that we are frail at best. The, re the virus reminds us that life is precious. And so we value it highly. But the virus also reminds us life is fleeting. In the Bible, Job, Isaiah, Psalms, Peter, and James all give a similar message. 
Our life is like grass, or a flower, or a shadow, or a vapor. It only exists briefly, and then it's gone. It might be simply said, we are born, we bloom, and we die. Life is fleeting. That's why the scripture says, do not boast of tomorrow, according to Proverbs 27. Do not boast of tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount toward the end of Matthew chapter 6 tell us not to live a life characterized by anxiousness, worry, panic. Why? Because our Heavenly Father knows what things we need. So we should seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will find their place, fall in place, and be appropriate for your life and mine. The virus teaches us to make our time here count, and that most of all, the importance of knowing Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, who was given by God the Father so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what this virus reminds us of. The virus teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us the brevity of our life and the necessity to be ready for eternity. Next, the pandemic teaches us a lesson about our faith. What does the virus teach us about our faith? Well, we are not the first Christians to face an epidemic or a pandemic. All those historical disease plagues that, that ravaged communities, countries, and even continents had populations of Christians in them. And history is replete with the account of Christians who would stay and care for the sick and dying during plagues and great illnesses. Hospitals were even the product of Christian communities in the Roman and Byzantine empires. Christians showed works of sacrificial mercy that even astonished the unbelievers. In Rome, the Christians buried their own, but they also buried the unbelievers. They supplied medicine, food, water, and supplies to their communities during the times of plagues. They did what they could. I give two examples, one general and one specific. The general example. During the plague of Caesarea in the fourth century, there in the area of Palestine in the Middle East, when nearly everyone fled the city to the countryside in search of safety, it was the Christians who remained. It was the Christians who risked their lives for one another by simple deeds of comforting the sick, offering water and food, and consoling the dying. At the risk of their own lives, they saved an immense number of lives. Their basic actions of nursing care for the time greatly reduced the disease mortality. Their simple provisions and kindness and words of encouragement allowed the sick to recover instead of dying miserably. 
One of the residents of Caesarea during this time was a man named Eusebius. Eusebius would be a, a, a church historian. He assumed a leadership role among the Christians there in Caesarea and recorded much of what happened during the plague. He told of all day long, Christians who all day long tended to the dying and to their needs, and even to their burial. He told of Christians who gathered together from all parts of the city, he said, a multitude of them. Though weakened from the associated famine, they distributed bread. They shared of their need for the sake of others. And that story is told over and over again of communities where the plague hits and Christians who showed love and kindness. Many historians will say it's one of the reasons why the faith of Christ expanded so much during those centuries was that people saw the genuine and authentic action of Christians. That's a lesson to learn of our faith, is it not? A more particular example is that of Martin Luther, or probably a name familiar to many of us, but Martin Luther was an influential voice during the, during the Christian in, uh, Reformation of the 1500s. The bubonic plague would come to his hometown of Wittenberg, Germany. And in 1527, he received an inquiry from a fellow pastor. What should we do with the plague here in our town? Should we stay or should we try to escape for safety. Luther penned a quite lengthy response. It was later put into a pamphlet itself. It's entitled, Whether One Should Flee from a Deadly Plague. Luther provides a, a clear expression of a Christian's response during an epidemic. He encourages believers to obey quarantine orders fumigate their houses, and take precautions to avoid spreading the sickness. He does not condemn those who would flee for safety. He says they follow their convictions. But for him, the conclusion was clear. He said the plague does not dissolve our duties. What a great statement. The plague does not dissolve our duties. He would go on to say, we die at our post. His unwavering commitment to the Christian community he served as pastor, where he writes of days where he would go from house to house, visiting those with the plague and those who were dying and those who had died. His commitment would ultimately cost him the very life of his daughter, who at eight months would herself die of the plague. But his commitment was firm. He would stay at his post. The virus teaches us our faith causes us to respond with some of the most recognized teachings of our Lord. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. That's the lesson this virus can teach us. The virus teaches us our faith is precious because it is 
founded in that God of Psalms 46 who rules the city, who seeks to be our aid and our strength and our comfort and our guide. Our faith is precious. May we exercise it diligently as we serve our families and our community and our church and our country. There's one more lesson about the virus can teach us. Lessons about God. I think the first thing the virus teaches us is that we are not God. The vanity of all vanities is to think that our condition, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritually, is entirely in our hands. We are not God. God alone is a, a sovereign ruler of the universe. It is in the Lord who is indeed our refuge and strength. Our eternal security is resting in him. We rightly proclaim the greatness of God. I think we need to be as diligent to proclaim the goodness of God. The Bible certainly does so. So that even during a pandemic, we can value the goodness of God. The psalmist, the prophets, and the gospels all remind us of God's goodness. Genesis tells us of the creation being good, even very good. Psalms 119 says of the Lord, Thou art good and doest good. James chapter 1 says it this way, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Our faith is in a God that is great, but it's also in a God that is good. And even in challenging and difficult moments of life, we do not lose sight of God's goodness. A familiar verse to us from Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. God has indeed appointed for us a time to live and a time to die. Ecclesiastes gives us that perspective. The pandemic teaches us that God is not distant. He is not some distant deity out there somewhere. No, the Bible teaches us that God is accessible. He is at our side, Psalms 46 reminds us. He is the king and the, and the authority and the power of that great city. It teaches us that God is not an accessory to life, but that God is essential to life. The life that is lived here and the eternal life that awaits. It is that eternal life that is God's good gift to us. Eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. But it's a gift, and as a gift, it has to be received. Received by grace through faith, the scripture says. Simple obedience to come before the Lord, to acknowledge our sinfulness, 
our incompleteness, our own emptiness. To acknowledge he is God and salvation is only available through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the good gift that the Father offers us. And I trust today you can say that with assurity. I've received that gift. That makes you a heavenly citizen. Part of that city that is of God, protected by him, secured by him. May we find in that truth the capacity then to go forward. As we all realize, we do not know what today uh, a day may bring. And so let's put our confidence and our faith and our trust in this God. Remember what I said about Psalm 46 as we started? It was recited or sung as a reminder of God's sovereign power over a foreign invader. It acknowledges success is from the Lord while it echoes the reality of God's very present involvement in the outcome of the battle. So it's with that reason today I want to finish a little different than normal. I'd like to ask you to stand. You've been sitting and need to stand up. I've been standing and need to sit down. I'd like to ask you to stand, and I want us together with a voice of confidence, surety, confirmation. I want us to present before our hearts and our minds the statements of Psalm 46. So I want us to say it together, to say it aloud. Not the entirety of the psalm, but just some selected verses. So read these with me in your best and strongest voice as before the Lord. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, Though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Remain standing, if you will, and I'd like to close our time with prayer. And then Pastor Jason and the praise team will come and lead us, not in a song of invitation so much as a song of praise and a song of dedication.